as of right now, the utilities that we've been seeing have been more or less staking, um, you know, P2E, um, you know, crossbreeding of NFTs, um, developing marketplaces where you're able to customize them and things like that, which is great. I think that every single time you have one of these new metas, um, so to speak, in the NFT world being developed, you have the next leg being added to the pathway, if that makes any sense. I think that, um, you know, there's probably quite a few projects right now that we haven't heard of yet. And they're probably developing something that isn't out there yet that most likely is just going to change the game. And that's kind of the stuff I'm looking most forward to. I, I want to see stuff that really pushes the, everything forward. Something that people wouldn't even necessarily think about initially, but they think to themselves, wow, you know, I can't imagine where this is going to go in, in a month, two months, three months, half a year, a year, you know? Welcome back to OnChain Experiments, where we talk with the creators and collectors building Web3. Today's guest is Cantor. He's a producer who's toured with musicians like Kendrick Lamar, Steve Aoki, and Jay Colt. On today's episode, we'll be diving into a traditional music background and how the traditional music industry is moving into Web3 with Cantor. Hope you enjoy. And to give a little bit of background from a music perspective, um, I've been producing music for about 13 years. Um, I toured with Kendrick Lamar, Steve Aoki. Uh, I've done shows with T-Pain, Nelly, J. Cole. Um, I've I've done shows all over the country. Um, I've done shows outside the country. Um, and then I ended up um, switching the genre of music I was making uh, a few years after, like, I was doing the tour with Kendrick Lamar. Um, ended up creating a song that eventually got support from basically all the major DJs, you know, Tiesto, DJ Snake, Chainsmokers, uh, Bauer, Gareth Emery, you know, you name it. Um, and eventually um, I wanted to change myself again. So when, so to bring it back to the dancing aspect, um, I'm not really a dancer as much as I was just someone who ended up playing Dance Dance Revolution as a kid. Um, and I started playing that around 12 years old. And by the time I was 14 years old, I became the world champion. Um, and, you know, fast forward, I ended up taking the um, passion for Dance Dance Revolution and I invented a giant drum pad or launch pad, if you will out of um, four custom-made DDR pads or Dance Dance Revolution pads. So eventually, me and a friend of mine named Guy DuPont, um, we programmed these pads to become a giant MIDI controller. And I was able to um, make music, perform music, um, trigger samples, trigger live instruments via uh, dancing on the pads. Um, and we even programmed it so that way if I press certain buttons, I'm able to change the... Uh, the samples on the drum pad. So it's it's really been an interesting journey in that regard, um, just recreating myself multiple times and ultimately making a, an entirely new instrument. Um, so that kind of ended up 
pushing my brand into another direction, which kind of leads me into the Web3 space. But I think from a general music career standpoint, I've kind of reinvented myself a slew of times and um, kind of tried everything that I think made sense from a live performance perspective. The people that change their identity and are fluid in their identity and willing to say, this is who I was and now I'm going to try something else. I find those people the most interesting, like the, the first example from the, the Netflix documentary, just learning more about Kanye West and seeing like he was a beat producer and he was put in that box of a beat producer. And then he started to expand and say, well, I'm, I'm a rapper. And people would call him only like a producer rapper. And he's like, no, I'm a rapper. And he continued to say like, I'm changing my identity. I'm in control of my identity. And I think it's really cool that you were able to take your production and then be extremely successful with that. Touring with people like Kendrick and Steve Aoki and Tiesto, those are names that you could drop in pretty much any room and they would know who those people are. Yeah. And then to be like, you know what? I'm going to go play Dance Dance Revolution and turn that into a MIDI pad is a really cool pivot. And it makes me uh, remember this TikTok that I've been uh, seeing kind of, I think it might be a trend right now of just like, imagine you're in the new season of your life and it might be season one or season two and season three. You're going to have new actors, new relationships, new events that are happening. And you're changing up into whatever season you're in. I'm curious if you could define the season of life that you're in. What season of the, the Cantor TV show would you say you're in? Oh, God. Um I guess I would say I'm in season four um, and I'm transitioning into season five this year. Um, And then I'm hoping season five will last quite a long time. Um, I'm essentially working on a project that culminates all those different experiences into one. Um, and I think it's going to be a really interesting experience. It's going to be uh, my first Web3 project that, in my opinion, I didn't even plan on this becoming a Web3 project to begin with. Originally, the idea of this project that I am currently developing, it was supposed to be something that has not really been seen before in the traditional music industry space. And what ended up happening was um, I was preparing for it for about two and a half years and then the pandemic hit. And then basically the whole year, you know, there was um, just a lot of um, crazy things going on in the news and, you know, people were dealing with this whole new world that we were experiencing. So I kind of just put everything on the back burner and waited for things to calm down a bit just because I felt that there would be no way to do the project justice with so many outside, um, I guess, so many outside distractions for a majority of people to pay attention to new content. So yeah. eventually I ended up um, saving up a, a ridiculous amount of content. I have like over two albums worth of music right now. Um, and, you know, videos and performances and all types of things. And I ended up kind of just 
making sense to move it all into a into a web3 format just because i'd be able to share it with a lot more people and do things that i never really thought would be possible with traditional web2 and traditional music industry um i guess dynamics and and formats you know the thing that i find really interesting about web3 is not only do people have a lot more say and transparency with the art and the artist, but also it's just more of an intimate experience versus throwing something up onto uh, YouTube or Facebook or social media in general. I feel that people have gotten very, I think, overwhelmed and, and overstimulated with social media posts as it is. I feel that Web3 kind of brings everything back to where it used to be back in 2007, 2008, 2009, the early 2000s, especially in the music industry where, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the internet artist before everything became um, oversaturated. You know, if you were in the beginning in 2009, 2010, 2011, and you were able to utilize SoundCloud, utilize YouTube, utilize these different platforms and really build a following, people were really, really interested to become a dedicated fan and a listener. And there was this new type of feeling of interactivity with the artist or musician. Whereas now, you know, it's, it's become so monotonous that the Web2 experience is a standard and it's no longer something that gives the audience or the listener or the or the fan or what have you a unique experience now it's just kind of this the the regular thing to do so i get the feeling that web3 is going to offer musicians and and more than just musicians but artists in general a unique opportunity that we haven't had in almost a decade um and it's unfortunate to hear that there's so many people who are against the idea of web3 and NFTs and crypto, you know, there's a lot of um, slander going around about different fundamental aspects of the scene and, and the technology. But, you know, if you take just a little bit of time and look into what this technology is capable of, let alone what's already occurring and what has already occurred, you know, it, it really opens your eyes to a whole new world of freedom, if you will, and interactivity and experiences. I mean, this is something that, you know, I personally didn't see coming when I was originally introduced to blockchain technology. And originally, when I heard about NFTs, it was more or less, you know, the, the average response, oh, you know, I can just copy this, or I can just, you know, rip this off the internet, what have you. I didn't fully understand the smart contract aspect of it. I didn't fully understand what was the purpose of it. And then eventually something just clicked for me. And I realized that this technology is much more than a bubble or much more than a fad. It's basically going to replace all of the existing intellectual property technology, intellectual property aspects of our day-to-day -day lives. And I think a lot of people don't realize that yet, but the people who do realize it, they're, they're extremely excited. And, you know, there's this energy about the space and the scene that 
I haven't really seen since the beginning of my music journey in the in the late 2000s. So, I mean, just to see everyone jumping on board and being so invested in everyone else's projects and time and and giving everyone else, you know, constructive criticism and and, you know, it's just a lot of positive it's just a really positive movement that I think everyone really needs right now. I mean, there's just so much in the entertainment industry specifically that has a lot of negative connotations and this kind of gives it a fresh start. Frank Ocean was dropping singles and then COVID happened and we didn't get a Frank album and I'm still sitting and looking at Frank Ocean like, when are we getting this next album, dude? But I, I definitely agree. I think a lot of creators were like, they were on their momentum, they were doing their thing and then COVID hit and some musicians were like, let's just keep pushing through this. And then you get negative pushback from the community of like, yo, do you not see what's going on in the world? Are you, are you really that blind that you're just going to ignore it? And other musicians like you kind of like put everything on hold. You took a step back. You took a breath. You said, okay, what's going on? What's changing? Oh, there's this cool thing, Web3. Let's dive down this rabbit hole. And I was at a music event last week um, for, I'm in Argentina and Los Palmeras were having their 50 year anniversary. And it was a private event. It was cool. There were a lot of people in the music industry and I'm talking to a lot of them. And the music professionals that did know about Web3 were like just getting into it. And most of them had built their entire careers around this model of like the super successful musician and trying to make people like blow off the top successful. And when I'm talking to them about some of the musicians like Steph, Steph Guerra is in the audience and we were just over in a Latin American space talking with Paula. Paula is doing, I think, very well in Web3. But when I bring her name up to other like musicians and bigger names here in Argentinian music, they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, she's cool. She's a smaller creator, but. Um, she's not like major. And in my mind, I'm like, no, she is exactly where the music industry is heading. It's more of this engaged, smaller audience and less of a focus on trying to oversaturate the market, overstimulate everybody, be on everybody's mind. It's, I think the music industry is really changing from the super influencer model to something younger or like more smaller and niche based. I'm very curious. You've been in the music industry since the late, you said 2000. So like 10 over a decade, you've been in music. Mm -hmm. What brought you into Web3? Like, what was your introduction into the Web3 ecosystem? So before it was even known as Web3, you know, I was introduced to cryptocurrency from a few friends back in 2017. Um, and I knew of it in 2013, 2014, but I never really interacted with it. Um, I guess... In 2017, 2018, you know, I never got involved, but I was under, but I was learning about it. And obviously, you know, that was the first like excessive bull run that got the first mainstream appeal. And then there was the fall. And then, you know, I thought the way everyone else thought, oh, you know, this is just a bubble, you know, it's whatever. And then basically the time I ended up getting actually interested in Web3 was legitimately when I would say the absolute beginning of the pandemic, I was thinking to myself, you know, what is there to do? You know, like, obviously I could just watch the news every single day and get, you know, all the sphere and, you know, get stressed out like everyone else was. So I tried to avoid that. And I was looking at different hobbies and different things to do to pass my time that weren't music related. Um, and 
I just started viewing some of the fundamentals and the technological aspects of cryptocurrencies. And, you know, the idea originally of having something be completely transparent while also having um, automation really intrigued me just because I already knew that automation eventually was going to replace a lot of the traditional um, work that is currently involved in the world. And I just got the feeling that, you know, how is this going to happen? Is this going to happen with robots? Is it going to happen with, um, you know, AI and so forth? And I didn't realize that cryptocurrency was actually going to be, or especially blockchain technology was going to become a huge part of it. So just ever since then, I've just been diving down the rabbit hole. Very much align. I was I was in Alexa beforehand, voice technology, conversational AI, and I, I was aligned with you. I was like, okay, we're heading to an automated world. We're currently interacting more with robots than we are with actual human beings. What does this look like 10, 20 years from now? What is the end goal? How can I skate to where the puck is going and not to where it's been? And I started building down that route. And eventually, I, I'm trying to remember the exact moment I came into Web3. Like For me, I'm not sure if it was like a single moment I came into crypto around the same time as you in 2017. I started buying ETH and Bitcoin and I was telling my parents like, look at this stuff. And they're like, nah, it's another bubble. It's going to pop just like everything else. Your entrance into Web3, you're saying like it was during the pandemic. Was there any like specific project or specific technology that really got you in? Or was it more of just this uh, emergent slowly coming in, like doing research and like, was it a specific thing or more of a, a wave? It kind of just like the second that I figured out that what the smart contract was capable of, that was kind of the the key to opening up the door for me, if you will. And when when did you start your DDR, your dance dance revolution, getting more and like less on the producing side, more on the dancing side? Oh, you mean like from a music perspective or just in general? Um, kind of a tangential question. I kind of ran, ran a different direction. I, I wanted to hear when, when did you start playing DDR? Oh, when I was like 12. <laughs> okay. And that, did that carry all the way through when you were doing your production? You were also playing DDR on the side? No, no, no. Um, so I played at 12 and I became world champion, the first world champion of, uh, specifically DDR extreme when, uh, I was 14 years old in eighth grade. And then after like 15 years old, I kind of stopped playing just because, you know, I already did it. Um, but I always, you know, had that experience with me. And around 2013, when I was touring with Kendrick Lamar, I had the idea of combining the two, but I didn't really um, move forward with the idea and actually create the DDR launch pad or drum pad until like 2017. I got to hear more of the story of how you got up to the big names like Kendrick. I think a lot of musicians and probably a lot of musicians still today would dream of touring with Kendrick. How did you get that opportunity? How did you create the opportunity to be able to tour with musicians like Kendrick, Tiesto, Steve Aoki, these really big names? A slew of things. It was just hard grind. So um, I released a couple albums um, my freshman year of college. Uh, you know, I was doing some shows here and there, but nothing crazy. Eventually, I ended up getting a serious manager who um, heard an album that I was working on, thought it was really, really good. Um, I released it, 
And the day I released it, I guess it was just the perfect timing. And um, the album got, this is back when everyone was using, I think it was called Mediafire. And um, I ended up becoming the second most downloaded, uh, I guess, music project on Mediafire that day in the world. And number one was uh, like a leaked Britney Spears record. Um, and literally within 24 hours of releasing it, the um, IFPI, which I think is the International Phonographic uh, something or another, is essentially the people who are in charge of copyright and things like that, because I had samples in the, in the records. Um, so it got taken down, um, but it had a lasting impression, ended up getting a booking agent that summer, um, started performing around and kept releasing music as I was performing for about a year and a half. Eventually, the manager that I had was working at a company who was about to throw a tour. And the person who ran the company had very close relations to Steve Aoki. And they were looking at adding a, um, a hip-hop musician as well. And at this time, this was right before Kendrick Lamar had his big um, album come out, Mad City. So this is before he really became a mainstream known artist, before he had his like big, big, big break. So um, I was lucky enough to go on tour with him right as that album dropped, right as he was doing the collaborations with Drake and ASAP Rocky and people of that magnitude. So it was kind of just like the right timing um, and everything like that. But, um, you know, it was a crazy experience. You know, I was driving around the country um, like I would perform while also driving around the country with like two people while producing music in the car and releasing music every Friday. So it was, it was a hectic time, but it was, it was something I'll definitely never forget. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a team. It sounds like you built a really powerful team that was able to help you get there. And that's an interesting little facet. So you were also putting out music once a week. Was that was that an intentional habit of producing kind of like a one a week, putting something out? So um, it was kind of like I wanted to keep the momentum going, especially while having this type of schedule. And I felt that, you know, when you get hot, you know, it's very it's, it's very easy to lose the hype. So I just wanted to make sure that I was maintaining it. So that was kind of the reason behind releasing music that quickly and that often i mean you, you see that with pretty much every social media algorithm the tiktok algorithm if you see anybody that's telling you about how to do well they say you have to produce consistently or else the algorithm's going to stop suggesting your content to people so I, I i think that's a very tried and true method i'm curious of what your goals were kind of pre-web3 as a musician and if they've changed post like now that you have web3 in your tool belt would you say that your goals as a musician have have changed with web3 technology yeah, I would say so. I mean, my original goal was go back on tour, um, get a new booking agency, um, you know, travel the world, things like that. But now, the more I think about it, the more the new project that I've been developing the past three or four years now is really much more suited towards Web3 than it is to the traditional music industry. So it kind of worked itself out in the sense that I was able to take something that I was working on that I was worried maybe wouldn't be fully understood by a traditional audience 
that definitely will be understood by Web3 and um, really future listeners of music. You know, what I'm noticing is that a lot of the traditional methods of promotion for music have kind of been dried out. You know, everyone's seen the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, you know, you can get a record on the radio. Yeah, you can get a record that goes viral on TikTok. Yeah, you can get a record that, um, you know, at least up until 2018, 2017, you know, did very well on SoundCloud. Now SoundCloud's kind of more or less a music discovery platform rather than something to go viral on. Um, And, you know, a lot of musicians have become more or less personalities, which is fine, Um, you know everyone has to adapt and do what makes sense for their own career and what makes sense for the time being. But I didn't feel that anything over the past three, four years was kind of a catalyst for moving forward, not only in the music industry, but just from an art artist perspective, from an art perspective, I felt that they were all kind of, small leaps forward, but nothing massive. Whereas Web3 is kind of like this entire new dimension. And a lot of people don't fully understand the concept of Web3 yet. So it's so early and it's so young in regards to the capabilities. You know, one analogy I I really tend to like is think of the internet started you know, late 80s, early 90s, really wasn't used by anyone until, you know, mid 90s, 95, 96, 97. And you had a lot of these companies coming out. You had Google, you had um, PayPal, you had eBay. You know, I don't even know if PayPal was out by then, but I know eBay was. Um, you know, you had Yahoo and, and Netscape and, and, and so forth. You know, that's kind of where we're at right now in 1997, 1998, prior to, let's say, the um, dot-com bubble, which was 1999, 2000, 2001. Um, Now, I have to say that is not financial advice. I'm not predicting what the future is going to say. But there's obviously going to be some reduction in failure of a majority of projects over the next year, two years, three years, if you will, because there's going to be a lot of people who eventually figure out what is true utility and what's more of a gimmick. Eventually, the projects that are going to survive are the ones that really have a tried and true community that really bring utility and really bring value to the holders and to individuals who are interested in the project. Eventually, those projects, in my opinion, are going to be the ones that become the name brand names. So, you know, if you pay attention to um, some of the, you know, traditional PFP projects, like obviously you have Bored Apes and you have all the others, you know, they have solidified themselves as legacy projects, you know, as long as they don't do anything catastrophic or as long as they continue to put out material and, you know, create utility for their community, they're going to be fine. But there's a lot of rug pulls. There's a lot of projects that have nothing going on for them. And those are the ones that are going to kind of fall through the cracks, which, you know, that's the beauty of competition. You know, it's always about pushing yourself and making it to the next level. So, you know, to bring everything back, I think that just this scene overall, there is basically immeasurable amount of opportunity and and growth potential. I think that, you know, it just comes down to how bad do you want it? How much are you willing to work for it? Um, You know, it's, it's, 
it's a very welcoming community. I think that this is probably the closest thing that I can remember to the music industry in the late 2000s, the late like 2000s, early like 2010s. You know, this is what it felt like where everything was still very buddy buddy. Everyone is willing to help one another, learn from one another, grow with each other. Um, there was really no maliciousness. There was no, um, you know, threat to one another. Everyone had their own path. Everyone had their own growing speed and so forth. So, you know, I think over the next year or so was really the perfect time for people to get involved just because this is the moment where it's just early enough where individuals can get involved with no gatekeeping, but it's also developed enough where you can see where it's headed. These cycles keep getting faster, I feel. Like there was the the technology bubble took from the 80s to the 90s and it didn't pop until the 2000s. And now here in Web3, we had the DeFi cycle where you had Uniswap and then you had SushiSwap and PancakeSwap, fork the code, put out a token, clone exactly what Uniswap it had. And then you see the NFT cycle, you see the board Ape and then a million projects just fork the board Ape code. And then you see the DAOs, you see something like an ENS do a token drop or a Zeus DAO, Olympus DAO doing a token drop. And then everybody forks Olympus DAO and forms their own DAO. And it's like you say, there is so much opportunity to experiment. And a lot of people's experiments are just like, well, I don't really know much. So I'm just going to copy this open source code that exists for free, which for me as an engineer is awesome. I love open source code. It allows us to innovate really fast. I am curious to know what you've been building and what you are building. Like getting into your on-chain experiments, you're obviously deep into Web3 and you have a very in-depth knowledge. I'm curious, what are the experiments you have been running here in Web3 to kind of build up your expertise and your confidence in your craft? Um, so there's, there's a lot of things that I can and can't talk about just because a lot of the stuff that's being under development is very proprietary, but I will say that I have been experimenting with utility that I'm, I'm interested in doing things that haven't been done before. Um, and I'm really, really interested in bringing a new level of interactivity to NFTs in the space in general. I think that, you know, obviously if something has been tried and true for others, that's, that's fine to also build off of. But I've always been one to want to do something that is not very traditional. I've always wanted to push boundaries. Um, and I know that's like a cheesy thing to say, but that's just kind of what has led me to success in the past. And, you know, that's just kind of the way that I operate in regards to both the music industry and just business in general. Okay, so most of the projects right now under wraps. Um, maybe we can talk more about DDR. Like, uh, do you think what you're doing with Web3 is going to be more on the music side, more on the physical technology side? Is it going to be a mix of both? Maybe I should stay away from your projects if they're all proprietary. <laughs> no, um, I mean, it should be released by the summer. Um, I think that the project is going to be much more on a technological and interactivity side. Um, there will be IRL aspects to it, but um, I'm primarily looking at creating an experience for both listeners 
end viewers that hasn't really been done before. Um, you know, not getting into anything too specific. I just get the feeling that, um, you know, a lot of people have wanted to see where this technology can go. And as of right now, the utilities that we've been seeing have been more or less staking, um, you know, P2E, um, you know, crossbreeding of NFTs, um, developing marketplaces where you're able to customize them and things like that, which is great. I think that every single time you have one of these new metas, um, so to speak, in the NFT world being developed, you have the next leg being added to the pathway, if that makes any sense. I think that, um, you know, there's probably quite a few projects right now that we haven't heard of yet. And they're probably developing something that isn't out there yet that most likely is just going to change the game. And that's kind of the stuff I'm looking most forward to. I, I want to see stuff that really pushes the, everything forward. Something that people wouldn't even necessarily think about initially, but they think to themselves, wow, you know, I can't imagine where this is going to go in, in a month, two months, three months, half a year, a year, you know? I, I see that with what you're doing with your feet on the production pad. Like one of my favorite Web3 producers is Kabuki and he's in the audience right now. I've, I've collected all of his Quantum Rainbow series and his utility is he's sending out a physical CD of the NFTs that I've been buying, which I think is really cool for a producer to do. And I think your ability to just continue to like, hey, I'm doing producing on a normal MIDI keyboard and now I'm doing it with my feet. Would you say that it, it changes your view of production when you're using your feet to kind of control the board? Or like, is there a difference when you start using your feet as the interface with uh, the beats that you're making and the music you're making? Well, I, I can definitely say it's a lot more difficult. Because um, <laughs> when you are utilizing a MIDI controller like a normal one or piano, for example, um, your fingers can move extremely quickly. And when it comes to the DDR launchpad that I have, uh, you're limited to not only how fast can your feet move and how fast are you able to get around the launch pad, but you also have to think about what direction you're facing, you know, because there will be times where when I perform, I can't even turn around to look at where I'm going. You have to, you have to know the pad so well that you can step around it without looking down. And also from a, from a dancing perspective, if you look down, it's not, it doesn't look good as a performance. You know, most dancers, they look out. So you have to know the pad from a 360 degree perspective instead of just something in front of you. Um, and then the other thing too that is interesting is because you're using your feet, if you slip, you're going to trigger other samples versus your fingers can be much more precise and tactile. Is this DDR launchpad uh, the basis for the human launchpad? I saw in your Twitter bio that you were creating Human Launchpad. Is is that related to DDR? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just use the terms intermittently. Um, I just switch them around. I say Human Launchpad just because I think it sounds interesting, but DDR Launchpad as well. Uh, the only reason I use Human Launchpad sometimes is because some people don't know what Dance Dance Revolution is. So it kind of helps get the um, the idea or concept across the people. Seize the memes of production.
memes are how we're all learning and growing in this space. The the most viral memes are the ones that everybody's talking about and everybody's sharing. So definitely leveraging memes. So what is the the Human Launchpad project? Is that you creating or is it like you building these uh, pads for other people? Um, tell me more about the Human Launchpad project. Um, so yeah, so I ended up hitting up a um, an engineer out of New Mexico, I believe. And I he builds uh, custom-made Dance Dance Revolution pads. I told him the project I wanted to do, and we came up with the CAD designs and built them. Um, and it was kind of just like a prototype that I came up with. Eventually, uh, people were asking me if I would make them for others. And, you know, while the idea would be great, it, it just didn't make any sense to um, sell them to people just because it was quite expensive. Um, you know, it was like, a, it was like, you know, a, a several thousand dollars and, you know, to the average person that's, that's quite expensive. So I felt that it didn't make really any sense to, to sell those to people. And I just kind of utilized it as a way to perform at my performances as well as, um, creating visual content with them. So really they're, they're more or less just a, a proprietary instrument that I use. It's a unique tool that you've been able to build in your tool belt, not necessarily open to other people, unless they are creative enough to reproduce what you've built. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear more about what has been inspiring you in the, in the space. Would you say that you have any role models in Web3 that you kind of look up to or that you draw inspiration from? Um, it's hard to say because... I wouldn't necessarily, I follow one individual person or one individual project. I think that there's just so much going on in the space that every single day I'm finding something new that has either a unique aspect to it or a unique utility or unique art or what have you. You know, with that said, I think that the projects that have really been innovative um, one of them would be Tayo Robotics. It's a Solana NFT. Um, they really have pushed the boundaries in regards to simple and yet effective implementations of different utility. I mean, I'm talking within the first 12 to 24 hours of them launching, they were able to have a state um, option with entire liquidity pool and you know, they already had, they're already hitting, um, you know, a piece of the roadmap every couple of days. Um, and then the other project that I think is really just ahead of the game in regards to how they're implementing everything is, is cold blooded creeps. Um, I have two of them and I have some of their add ons as well. Um, I mean, that project, that team, they've just been destroying it. Um, you know, like every single week, there's an entirely new gaming experience whether it's, you know, card collection, creating your own derivative of the project, um, you know, collecting points, P2E, everything, everything. So, you know, that those two projects, I would say, are the two that I've been impressed with the most in regards to both um, implementation and execution. Okay, now you've, now you've mentioned Solana. Now I got to ask you about chains that you're interested in. So are you... As a creator, are you solely interested in Solana? Um, what what chains would you say you're interested in as a producer and a creator? Um, 
it's hard to say because Solana, while it definitely has a lot of positive aspects, there are some concerns in regards to the centralization of the nodes and just the ecosystem as a whole. Obviously, Ethereum, while it's the main um, the main competitor and the main alt, um, it does have the issue of gas, which obviously will be fixed when they have Ethereum 2, whenever that launches. Um, in regards to ecosystems that I really, really like, I'm really, really, really bullish on um, Polkadot, AVAX, and Luna, to be quite frank with you. I get the feeling that... And also IOST. IOST has had a really interesting um, fun week or so. Um, I believe they're releasing their own stablecoin as well as um, a couple of other things. So I would say those are kind of the ecosystems I'm most interested in. I could I could dive deeper on the technical side, but I noticed that my co-host, Virtual.eth, Remington, just came up. How you doing, Remington? Hey, I'm doing well, guys. Um, super happy to be here. Just just got off a call with some pretty dope individuals, but wanted to hop in and say hello to Cantor and, and everybody in the audience. How's it going? Hey, it's nice to meet you. Remy's Likewise, man. Okay, so maybe a little bit more on the technical and then I'll back off. I don't hear many creators talking about Polkadot, Luna, and AVAX. Um, maybe in like a couple paragraphs, what would you say, if you're talking to a new musician, um, what would you have to tell them about those platforms? I think Solana is really cool because of the low cost. And for someone that's wanting to run some on-chain experiments and doesn't have $100 to spend on a transaction to do something on Ethereum, Solana is a great place to be able to play around and get your feet dirty and run experiments and have some successes and failures while you're still understanding uh, some of the fundamental concepts. For a musician, if you're talking to them and they haven't done anything on any chains, what would you have to tell them about chains like Polkadot, Luna, and AVAX? Um, so from a fundamental perspective and a technical perspective, I think that a lot of the NFT realm is starting to experiment with some of these separate ecosystems such as AVAX and, and Polkadot and Near and Luna and, and so forth. Um, they're still very, very early, but as time goes on and there are new efficiencies created in those ecosystems, there's definitely going to be um, a changing point. And I don't know which one of those ecosystems is going to be the next one, but they basically all have an extremely cheap um, transferring ability, similar to Solana, um, but they have a more decentralized aspect to them. From, from Polkadot, um, it has a really interesting staking liquidity pool um, abilities. And with AVAX, it just more or less has more development on the NFT side, uh, utilizing Juggernaut and a couple of their other on-ecosystem tokens. Um, I mean, really, it just is going to come down to how are the developments going to go over the rest of the year for each of these different ecosystems, as well as what type of marketplaces and projects are going to be launched on those ecosystems. Because at the end of the day, an ecosystem can be phenomenal, could be fast, could be efficient, and, and so forth. But if it has no 
projects involved. If it has no, you know, hit piece of art or utility, then, you know, who's going to flock to it? I'm curious, you know, anytime we're, we're talking about the Web3 space, Ethereum is always the main focal point as far as a chain to, to build on top of. Um, I guess why is like chains like Polkadot or, you know, the other ones you're referring to, like they're not they're not always referred to, you know, specifically by the builders of the space. Why do you think that is? Well, they're newer and they're not as developed. I mean, um, so, for example, Polkadot is the third most held coin that isn't a stable coin in the ecos in, in all of crypto, to my knowledge. Um, and then in regards to AVAX and, and Luna and stuff like that, they're gaining a lot of traction. I mean, you have to remember Luna and AVAX are like less than two years old. Same with Polkadot versus Ethereum came out in what, 2014, 2015, 2016, something along those lines. So, I mean, it just has a lot more time to develop their, their ecosystem, their team members, um, word of mouth, ever, everything. You know, when you talk to someone new, they know of probably three things. They know Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin. And that's about it, you know. And most people don't even know Ethereum and Dogecoin. They just know Bitcoin. So when you're talking to the average layman in, you know, and just in life, you know, they're not going to know about any of these altcoins. So a lot of people tend to focus on who's the big dog because it's not only easiest to get involved and there's a lot more material and a lot more, um, I guess, examples that help make sense to the average person or someone new coming into the space. But it there's all, it's also has a lot more history that allows people to kind of dig deep into it. You know, if, if you have someone brand new, and you say, here's a white paper for, um, you know, AAVE, or here's a white paper for API3 or something. They're not going to understand anything because they don't understand the basics from Ethereum or Bitcoin or, or some of the other major caps, you know? The Lindy effect is real. Like the idea that the future life expectancy of a chain or any idea is proportional to its current age. Like you said, Ethereum's had a massive head start back in 2015, tw late 2014, early 2015, as opposed to some of these newer chains. They, they just don't have the same life expectancy. And a lot of the chains that have come up to compete against Ethereum have died, like the EOSs and the Trons. I mean, they do still exist and they have massive market caps. But if you look at who's been building on it, they've pretty much died for all intents and purposes. Nobody, nobody I'm sure nobody in this room knows about a, or like Tron or EOS, they, they, they don't do anything anymore. And so you talk about like 90% of these things are going to die. Um, but then there's also the chance that you might be playing within Ethereum, something that is going to grow and be around and have build its own Lindy effect. Do you see these chains as having like staying power or do you think the Polkadots and the AVAXs and the Lunas are kind of, they're short term, you can capture some value now, but be prepared for them to die in the next couple of years. Do you see like, a multi-chain ecosystem continuing to grow or just having a couple of winners that can stand the test of time? I think it's definitely going to be a multi-chain um, crypto world. I think that definitely some projects will die off, but 
I think each project is going to have its own proprietary utility. You know, the, the best way to explain it to people is you're not buying a currency. You're buying a share in a software company. You're buying a share in a patent. You're buying a share in something that is going to have one specific purpose in the future. And right now, it hasn't even been utilized. People are still developing that reason. But, you know, if if there's one thing Polkadot can do, it could be a lending program. I mean, AAVE is a great example. It's basically like a mortgage system, but in DeFi. So, you know, I think that there are obviously going to be um, projects or ecosystems that die off. Like, you know, you're saying the Trons and the the EOSs and so forth, you know, they're dinosaurs. They haven't done anything in, in quite some time. But again, it doesn't mean that you can't trade them. It doesn't mean that you can't um, hold it and see if it gets, um, you know, acquired by another company and then you're able to arbitrage it or what have you. You know, there's going to be opportunities in every single um, cryptocurrency. It just depends on what your ultimate motivation is. I see we just had Ruben come up on the stage. Ruben, did you have a question for Cantor? First, welcome. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. A um, couple of things. One, uh, I think, yeah, there's there's definitely like a plain language issue with crypto stuff in general. I feel like a lot of people want to do cool shit. Um, they, uh, you know, if they feel like they need a developer or an attorney, then the burden of execution, I think, is going to be prohibitive to most, to a lot of things. So um, sort of those middle layers, right? Um, you know, the sort of the C pluses to the, uh, to the basics, to the, to the binaries, you know, those sort of multi-layers, um, I think are going to be useful as they continue to develop. Um, uh, second thing, I think the Lindy effect is actually, I, I'm skeptical on this Lindy effect thing. I feel like it's a cognitive bias that's derivative of survivorship bias. And then, uh, the third thing is, um, if we sort of extrapolate this whole idea of the biology, um, uh, you know, Pareto principle, 80% come from 20% of the things, I think it's an interesting idea. But in that, in, in, in if we sort of extend that, what do you think the selective pressure is for survival or failure? When you say selective pressure, do you mean like um, what is the competitive nature that's going to push other projects out of the way? Well, yeah. So, I mean, tokens are just things that represent other things, right? So, in theory, if I make a token that represents another thing, then the success or failure of that is going to be determined by something. Um, and to the extent that there is a, you know, elements or, or factors that determine the survival or lack thereof of any particular technology or token structure or whatever, um, to, to me, those selective pressures feel like accessibility and usability and, and just um, yeah, there's probably going to be some network effects that kick in at some point. I think we're starting to see some of those network effects on some of the marketplaces. Um, but I wonder if there's anything that we might be missing as we start to look at um, what are the determinant variables that you know might lead to the um, expansion or you know inevitable contraction of any particular project. I mean, there's just so many factors that go into that question. I think that 
Um, you know, you have a fundamental analysis standpoint, you have a technical analysis standpoint, you have an on-chain analysis standpoint. I think that there's really the best way for me to answer the question is that there's going to be a lot of different tokens that, as you said, represent different things, whether they're just straight up commodities and being used as a store of value, whether they are derivatives and are supposed to be um, relying upon something else or whether they are something that um, has some type of utility. I mean, that all of those different things will either impact the price and the longevity of a token or project, as well as giving, you know, the team or the uh, individuals behind the token ability to, you know, work on protocols, gather money, um, raise money and things like that. I mean, it really comes down to what they do with the money raised as well, you know? So when a lot of those tokens end up, you know, like back in 2017 and stuff, you had a lot of ICOs and you had a lot of things that were generating income, but they weren't really utilizing the money for anything. It was more or less a cash grab. So now you have to think about, you know, what projects are trying to create some actual type of value and not just using fluff words or just using, you know, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not like you have to look for tokens that are actually bringing something to the table. You know, like when I look at Luna and having um, and having UST, for example, I think that them buying a bunch of Bitcoin and creating a store of value for the stable coin is creating something that definitely is more um, compelling than USDT, especially with a lot of the liquidity issues that people have had about it, um, as well as, you know, USDC. I know that Blackwater now, I'm sorry, it's BlackRock. Uh, now is one of the main holders or main uh, brokerages of that. So, you know, the reason UST, as, as an example, is going to most likely last beyond um, USDC and USDT is just because it has a better background, I think, at least in, in my eyes. Um, you know, I think the question you asked is a really good question, but I think it's it's very... Uh, broad in the sense that I could probably be here for like an hour talking about different uh, things here and there. I just think that, you know, each token is going to have its own scenario. And it really comes down to the protocol. It comes down to the team. It comes down to the funds that they've raised. It comes down to what's their TVL? How much is being staked? Do they have liquidity pool? You know, there's, there's, uh, there's just so many different things that that could impact longevity the price the the innate value of a token and and the team behind it it means ev it's everything do you think that there is a likelihood that we might see nfts uh expand beyond the sort of representation of financial value or rather be characterized by the exchange of financial value into something a little bit closer to say json objects uh, what was the last piece you just said? So, um, if, I, if if I say JSON object, is that are you familiar? JSON. It's like um, it's just like a, it's a, a did well, it's a digital object um, that is quite well. It's actually no less or more fungible than an NFT. It's just that JSONs, generally speaking, aren't built on architectures that 
uh, are distributed and require the consensus of the network to determine their veracity, right? So it's just, you know, uh, Mario and Super Mario would be like hat equals red, legs equals two. It's just a, you know, a, a sort of a little object and you can nest them inside each other's parent-child relationship. And to me, it feels like NFTs are effectively JSON objects, except they're built on an infrastructure that has a sort of immutable history of record, um, which gives them certain properties to the extent that we choose to assign, you know, certain kind of behaviors to them. And, and to me, it feels like the ownership thing is uh, like a start. It feels like it's like like the toothpick in the Swiss Army knife, so to speak. But I don't. Uh, I, I see the the utility being a lot more broad, and not just uh, not just like I'm going to buy this thing because it has utility. Just like oh, I need to, you know, I need to close my garage door. I'll use the NFT to do that. You know what I mean? Like there's not there's not a buying or a selling relationship there. It's just that happens to be the digital object that I'm using to do the thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. Now I think that um, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I agree. I think NFTs are going to be utilized for stuff that isn't art or for a financial purpose. I think it will be, you know, deeds to a house or they'll be used to solidify, you know, where money goes in an escrow account or, you know, it could be used for, um, you know, automatic payments on your on your rent. It could be used for, um, you know, lottery uh, uh decisions that could be used for so many different things. I mean, one thing, you know, that comes to mind too, is like your social security number, you know, like you are essentially given, well, I, I from your accent, it sounds like you might be from Australia, but in, if you, oh, very, if you aren't, very, very close, very close, Kiwi. Oh, okay. Got it. Very, very close. Um, so in the United States, we have social security, which basically everyone gets when they're born in the United States. So instead of just getting a little card, you'd probably just have an NFT that's attributed to your name and likeness and so forth. So I a hundred percent agree with you on that. I think that is where it's going to go eventually. Um, but I also think that it's probably not going to be adopted for at least like a, a little bit of time, but it's definitely not that far out in the future. While some of the comments about Terra and Luna might not have aged well into the current release date from when we recorded, overall, this was another leg that was tried, another branch of the ecosystem. And I think that was a cool metaphor of this path that's being drawn out. Everybody is trying something new that has never been tried before. We're experimenting with different branches and the strongest branches get bigger, thrive and create opportunities for more branches off of there. Thanks for tuning in. This is Sweets signing off. Oh, one last quick comment. Now that Mint Songs has released 0x Splits integration, I will be releasing the NFTs again. Right now I'm thinking, I'm trying to decide between releasing these as one of ones or one of five editions. I will probably lean towards editions for now as I really like giving the opportunity for us to send the token to more recipients. But we'll flesh out that thought more as we go along. Thanks again. This is Sweets signing off.